Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Outlook. I'm Luke Anthony and for this episode I've got a fantastic guest lined up. But before we jump into that, I hope you're all keeping safe. Hope you're not coughing on the elderly. One thing they didn't confirm though, they said we can go out for exercise once a day, right? But they never never specified how long that could last. So I've been going out for walks for the last seven and a half hours. Cue that kind of laughter. And also to all my fellow comedians, I just want to say that I hope you're doing all right in this world of no gigs and that you're, you know, you're keeping afloat and you're keeping your head above water um, whilst you're not getting that income and I hope you've got a cash flow still coming in. And yeah, so so keep positive, keep writing and I'll see you on the other side of this. And those of us who MC, you know who you are. You've all wound up secretaries and IT dudes who are now all working from home and still earning. So they've had the last laugh. <laughs> I also feel really bad for Philip Schofield, who spent 30 years coming out. It was a real struggle. Really proud of him that he finally came out. But now he's been told to go back in. <laughs> See, who needs a live audience? We can do this all remotely. Not a problem. But I have a great guest for you this week. I've been seeing on this episode for a few weeks. I got really busy just after I recorded it. I haven't got a producer anymore, so I'm doing it all myself. Um, but we've got pre-COVID-19... Here is a wonderful guy who just managed to finish his tour um, at the end of February, just before all of this kicked off. He's a podcasting giant and a comedian who totally believes in comedy as an art form. He's an absolute Ed Fringe fanatic, which feels slightly insane because all the preparations are up in the air at the moment. But I really hope that still goes ahead. My guest for this episode is Stuart Goldsmith. Like I say, he's a podcasting giant. We recorded this episode in an echoey conference room at the Junction in Cambridge before his last performance of his tour show, End Of, which I can confirm was a masterclass. You've missed out. It's happened. It's finished. And it was amazing to see the comedian behind his global podcast, The Comedian's Comedian, actually just being a comedian on stage and making everyone laugh. It was brilliant. It really was brilliant. So please welcome to the show, the comedian, Stuart Goldsmith. So twelve years. So you you were at the birth of podcast, really, weren't you? You're at the right right near the beginning. Well, I I mean, the first podcast I remember really getting excited about was Adam and Joe when they did their six music show, and that predates me by a long way. And then since then, I've heard that Louis C.K. used to do podcasts back when it was an RSS feed, and you really need it's still an RSS feed. But you really needed to understand computers to... I mean, I think some of them are available online. And it's him a good long time ago seizing, as comedians have done the world over, seizing the means of production and going, I can make my own show with just some stuff and a computer or like literally just a phone. That blows my mind. You could get any smartphone and create your own podcast with an internet connection and the recording device built in like it, and provided the content was good obviously the sound quality wouldn't be amazing but it, you could have a hit so anyone who ever sat under their bedclothes recording their own you know making silly little shows I mean I'm in my early 40s um, for showbiz purposes 28 uh, but uh, any, any of us who had like a high speed dubbing on a, on a twin cassette deck and kind of like recorded stuff from one tape to another the idea that you now as a performer can just go, oh, I've, I've got an idea for a thing and I'm going to do it, is, is really exciting. So I, I was by no means there at the beginning, but I suppose I'm part of like this, the maybe third 
wave or stage of uh, of late or was it late stage podcasting yeah I, I you know it, it was I was staggered to find out recently I started my show eight years ago um, but yeah it was the I think it was the was it the Ricky around the time of the Ricky Gervais show when they did the the cartoons of the the old podcast I don't know I don't remember the date the, the podcast were but that was sort of the time where it really boomed and yeah I, I don't know if I don't think I was podcasting around then I don't know when he first started doing monkey news but I remember him started doing chimpanzee that monkey news and that really made me laugh and maybe I feel like that must have existed before I did it so yeah there's lots of people who kind of you know come to it at different times all of which has kind of now become this rolling thing whereby of course any radio station is going to chop up all of its existing content and output and and podcast all of that and so suddenly it's very hard to find anything that isn't you know it, it's democratized brilliant it's like youtube i'm sure the early days of youtube were a few a relatively few creators going this is my special thing and now it's oh no it's telly telly is desperate to get on youtube and be the biggest thing on it so what that means for the future i have no idea <laughs> well over 10 million downloads so clearly one of the the best out there uh, wrong on all counts uh over 15 million downloads and that's i mean i say that to be churlish but uh, there is no link between how successful something is and how good it is. That is a core value of mine, yeah. probably because I am not uh, as successful in a global kind of way. The podcast is loved by people. I love it, and lots of the listeners love it. Um, and what it's good at, like it has a certain territory that it is good at, and I kind of recognise that. But I also think, like it, it drives me nuts when awards have a public vote context to them because then surely they just it's the people with the biggest social media following who win (laughs) I mean it just is and uh, as someone who very begrudgingly uses social media and and things like that I of course am angry about that and shake my tiny fist about it because you know it's not fair but what is fair the idea of an award isn't is inherently unfair so so anyway what I'm taking exception to is you've paid me a lovely compliment there which is kind of you and I'm disagreeing with it because I'm banging a drum <laughs> about the fact that I don't think something is something is good because it's popular that's, I agree that, I, I'm Stuart Goldsmith and that was my clever point <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast there we go <laughs> you, you peaked too soon to do oh, yeah, there's well. a real sound bite there and <laughs> um, but first and foremost, you are a comedian, and I think I think it's right and only right to recognise you as a comedian first before you are a podcaster, because mm-hmm. you entered the profession early on with, with street performing and everything, but mm-hmm. then went into stand-up comedy, and that's what you wanted to do. And then this comedian, I don't want to put words into other comedians, comedian was a way of an extra tool to aid that almost. Well, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. I just, it was interested me. I think I just wanted to be a better, yeah, I wanted to be a better comedian and I thought it'd be good to ask people who were really good how they got really good. And then I suppose I sort of gradually realised that not everyone was obsessed. I mean, most comedians are obsessed with comedy to some extent, but our obsessions are in different ways. Some comics are obsessed with the moment on stage and some comics are obsessed with the, the kind of comedy as a vocation and some comics are obsessed with the lifestyle or the 
you know, the archetype of being a comedian. And I hadn't. I thought all comedians were obsessed with being really analytical about jokes and performance and things like that. And they're not. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just kind of found an outlet for my kind of geekery about it to to breathe a bit. But yeah, I suppose it, I, I did. I suppose that's. I don't know. I don't know if I started doing a podcast in order to get good. I wanted to have conversations with comics in order to get good, and it seemed sensible to record them. Um, I didn't really, I absolutely, hand on heart, didn't think this will be a useful method of contacting audiences and converting people into being fans of mine. And although that has happened to a limited extent, my podcast is pretty unique amongst comedy podcasts in that it isn't funny. So it doesn't in- inherently do the job of telling the audience that I'm a really funny comedian. If you compare it to something like <laughs> any other comedy podcast, you know, there's sort of someone like um, uh, Jen Kirkman does a, a podcast called I Seen Fun, which is, uh, which uh, the brilliance of the title only recently kind of clicked in my head. But, um, you know, that's her. She'll often just be like in the bath or eating Chinese food or something and just rambling effectively about the day in a really funny way and then you listen to that and you fall in love with her and then you go oh, I, want to, I want to go see her comedy mine is I try to be invisible in mine I try to let the interview subject speak and really kind of I really listen really hard and try to sort of kind of I don't know I like I'm losing my thread, but I try to not be in it. <laughs> so it's not funny, and I try to not be in it. So whether it makes me a better comedian or uh, grows my audience as a stand-up, it, if it does do those things, it doesn't do them very efficiently. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, fair enough. Yeah. And I, I just, I just thought that the original thing was to try and help you improve as a comic, but yeah, but yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, yeah. I just, for me, the origin, I just don't remember how I felt about it when I started doing it. And I don't, surely it would make more sense if I just wanted to improve as a comic to, to record them and not release them. Because what I've done is helped democratise comedy craft <laughs> to the extent that there are at least 100 people who've started in some way because of the podcast, because of my podcast. And, uh, and that's... I mean, that's fine now, <laughs> but when they're all competing with me for work, which some of them are already outstripping me for work, um, then uh, it does seem a little short-sighted. But, yeah. From watching, you started comedy, you might say, you did your first Edinburgh show in 2006. Uh, four on the Floor. On the four on the Floor. Yeah. That was a four-hander. It was me, Diane Morgan, Joe Wilkinson, and Lee Bannard. Former comedian Lee Bannard. Former comedian. Yeah, yeah, he, he quit a few years. He completed comedy a few years after that. He was brilliant. He was a really kind of dark, one-liner character and uh, seeded throughout his set was the implication that he was an arsonist. And it was really funny. He was really, really good. But it was a tough year at Edinburgh because Joe Wilkinson, who everyone is, is very famous now, and Diane Morgan is well-known, very famous for being um, uh, Philomena Kunk uh, and kind of has kind of sort of embodied that character beyond... Charlie Brooker's Scream Wiper, I think it started. Um, and, you know, they're both brilliant actors and comics, and and Lee was always brilliant as well. And I felt like uh, going in every day at Edinburgh, where we were having a tough time struggling for audiences, we all sort of, I think we all expected it to be easier than it was. But of course, I've been going to Edinburgh for years by that point. I've been going there for at least something like nine or ten years. So I knew that it was going to be hard to get a crowd and you've got a chuck load of energy into it and everything and I did feel like 
those are three particularly uh, uh, dour. Uh, let's not say morose, but Edinburgh's tough. And naturally, the personality types of those three other comics were very like, oh, here we are again. And I don't disagree with that at all. But uh, but I would bound in going, come on, guys, let's go for it. And they would all be like, oh, like that. I'd be like, do you, do you want me to, you, I'll compare, I'll compare, I'll get everyone up. They're like, yeah, if you could, yeah. And like, you know, so I have very uh, fond memories of it. But uh, I do remember it being uh, hard. Uh, I remember it being emotionally hard in a different way than I think they will remember it being emotionally hard. Mm. And, and you've been up pretty much every year since then, haven't you? Every single year. I've been every single year. I've performed every single year for the last 25 years. Wow. That's incredible. That's an, that's an incredible uh, dedication. Uh, it, well, yeah. I mean, there's, there's other things to do on the planet in August, but I haven't got the imagination to find them. I just went up as a teenager. It blew my head off, and I went. And and I do think now, lots of people who are uh, other other equally or more successful comics than me um, plan to move through Edinburgh. There's so many ways. You know, it's just it's not. Edinburgh is like a coral reef. It's like a living, breathing organism um, that uh, is sort of under threat of exploitation by the people inside it often. But um, but the fringe is like this sort of pulsing, living thing. And people react to it in different ways. And some comics, when they arrive at Edinburgh, think, I can't wait to get out of here. I want to use this to... To, to bounce to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and then get out of here and never have to come back. I got there day one I, as a comic and, I, and as a street performer and then as a comic and I, my thought with Edinburgh has always been how can I make sure I come back here every year for the rest of my life? Which is... I, I've always wondered whether a, a challenge of mine is that I, I don't dream big enough. You know, I kind of... I just fell in love with it. I was like, this is all I need. This is all I want. This is all my friends are here. I get to perform every day. I've had such incredibly positive experiences and challenging experiences and growing growth kind of experiences um, in that city and at that festival that I don't really want anything else. I'm like, okay, you'd be a you know a multi-billionaire comedy behemoth, you know that that kind of ruins it because you can't you can't go the, you can't go to Bannerman's and without everyone knowing who you are, you know that kind of thing. And I've, as I've known friends of mine become very famous and noticed what a challenge it becomes when you're very famous. It seems to spoil a lot of things. So either I don't dream big enough or I dream exactly big enough for me, thank you very much. And as a result, Edinburgh is just everything I need on a plate. And I fall in and out of love with it all the time. But I, uh, yeah, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to not go. Why would you not go? It's an, it's an incredible festival. It's always it's always buzzing, and and clearly you, you've it's worked for you very much. Like as the years have gone on, maybe not every year, but it's worked for you overall. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. So I, I've looked at a lot of your old videos. I haven't seen every single one oh, of your thank you, stand-up shows. I appreciate that. Thank you. But I've looked back from early sets of yours all the way through your comedy career, mm-hmm. and correlating that with the podcast, I don't want to talk too much about the podcast because you are fundamentally a comedian to me and that's that's what I like about you and I love your stand-up and all of that sort of in your style looking at the two together and the correlation between speaking to loads of different comedians and then going up and doing your, your shtick uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think you've genuinely just like grown as a comic anyway and I think with or without the podcast yeah. I think you would have got to where you are now without it okay 
and I don't I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's the you the the amount of advice or the things you've heard of sort of oversaturated everything, and you've just realised that whatever whatever I do is true to me, regardless of what any comedian tells me how it should be done. You know. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Is that is there a question or is it so. an observation? Yes, yeah. it is an observation. It's an observation, but I just wondered whether you agree with that. Whether whether you think that you you'd be you'd be the comedian you are without the podcast basically oh yeah um yeah i hope so i mean i think the thing is i can't remember the conversations i've had and when i'm in them when i'm interviewing someone i'm busy trying to sort of navigate the labyrinth of all the different possibilities of where the conversation could go and what are they saying and what can i challenge them on and all the rest of it so i i listen to them on, on one level less well than anyone listening to the podcast so I don't think it's. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've got no idea. I'm, I've got no idea. Probably the biggest, the biggest fundamental change that the podcast has has done to me in my career. Change that has done was terribly good. Um, is that I realised pretty early on, within two or three years of doing it, I thought, oh god, most of us are terrified that we're an imposter. We're not real. We're the invisible person of comedy. We're doing it wrong. Most of us think that. So I don't really have to think that any more than any more. I don't have to think that anymore. And I spend a lot of time wrapped up in that. I'm a terrifically anxious person and recognising the anxiety that is rife in comedy and within comedians made it more bearable for me. So that's probably the biggest thing. I don't know what I would be like as a comic if I wasn't anxious. I've, I mean, maybe I wouldn't be a comic. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's certainly there are there are things uh, things occur to me all the time, little tricks and and uh, not performative tricks but like writing tricks. Just knowing that you don't have to sit down and write out jokes longhand. Just knowing that everyone does it differently, and knowing it, having spoken to people firsthand over three hundred times, knowing it incontrovertibly, if that is a word or the word I mean, um, that. Whenever anyone says you do it like this, all they mean is I do it like this. So that is very freeing. And it does make, that's, that's certainly an effect it's had. I feel very empowered that what, however I say I do comedy is the right way. And whatever I do is the right thing for me. And when you come and see me, whatever I decide to do is, that's what you get. That's me. That's the show. So I suppose I naturally am quite a craven groveling little squit who's kind of eager to please everyone and prove that I've done my homework but the podcast has helped me overcome that and go no actually fuck off I'll do exactly what I want and if you don't like it that's fine and I think that is a much better starting point now some comics start from that starting point a lot of excellent comics have the attitude that whatever I say is the show if you don't like it fuck off I've had to cultivate that and I'm still not as good at thinking that. But that's, it's not the only way to be a good comic. But Jesus, if you, the less you care on stage, the less you care, the better you are. But you obviously need to care enough to get up there and do it in the first place. So under difficult or frustratingly administrative circumstances, whatever, um, you've got to care to get up there. But then when you're up there, you have to be in touch with the part of you that doesn't care. So I'm better at being in touch with, I feel more empowered to not care. That's the answer. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Now, how far in your 
comedy journey, did you realise your persona? Did you realise your voice to coin a, a cliche? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. God knows. I don't know. Well, you referred earlier on in passing to my shtick. I'd love to have a shtick. I'd love to have a thing that I do. God knows. God knows. I, I, my career would be much more glittery if I had a really recognisable thing. Oh, he's that guy that does that. And I don't. And loads of us don't. And I'm okay with that because I have said from day one, all you can do, all I want to do with comedy is be myself as honestly as possible. Like, that's the journey for me. The journey is, and that is so exciting about where I am at the moment, more than ever. Like, the show I'm going to do tonight, I wrote most of the, the first half, end of, uh, is, is, is the name of the show. And I wrote that about two years ago. And I love it, and it's good, and it's about, like, the crux of that show, which won't be a spoiler to, to you, maybe, but um, by the time anyone hears this, this show will be concluded. But the crux of that show is wondering about ambition and about whether I, I, I'm just at a point in my life whether, and I think this is relatable, can I be bothered to be ambitious anymore? Is the ambition making me happy? I'll always do the work, but... I, if I just decoupled the envy and the striving and the ambition from my life, maybe I'd be happier. That's the crux of the show. The show I'm doing in the second half, which is going to be called The Void, which is at Edinburgh uh, this year, 2020, um, that show is about hopelessness and trying to remain optimistic in the face of despair, and despair being very easily contactable. And there may be an element to it about whether or not that is because whether I feel the despair that I feel because it's perfectly reasonable to or because it's my personality or what is your personality? Is it just mechanisms for coping with stuff that went before? So that is all, that's all kind of, I'll be splurging my way through that this afternoon, this evening. So to bring it back to your question, those things, those, those topics, that subject matter, I am... That is my shtick, <laughs> like taking the idea of like, here's a big magical realism thing. And I'm going to try, I keep using that phrase. I don't even know what it means. What, like a big, like a big, I want a big subject, like a big thing, like despair. And I want to just kind of just grab like a big balloon, get on top of it and kind of squish it small enough and palatable enough that I can go, see, get that. Laura Davis, brilliant Australian comic, now resident in the UK, said on my podcast years ago, and I think of this a lot, she said, a comedian, like any artist, we're just holding a bit of ourselves up to the light and going, see that? See how the light goes through that? You, do, you, do you think that? Does that happen for you as well? And I think I'm getting closer and closer to doing that in a more and more honest way. So I, it's not a shtick and it's not a voice, but I feel like I know what I'm trying to do. And it's the same thing as I've always been trying to do, is just to go, I feel like this all the time. Do you? anyone and I'm getting better at getting the elements of the things I feel and making them more relatable so that people don't just look at me and go well no anymore no I don't feel like that I can go I, these days I'm better at going no no not like that but like this and I can feel audiences kind of go ah oh, yeah okay you got me I know you've spoken about this before briefly I think it was in your 300th episode about that shouting at yourself in the car with rage. <laughs> yeah, sure. and, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've spoken about it a few times, but I do get that. Yeah. I get that myself when, when like today, with the, the spilling coffee in a 1,500-pound laptop, um, in the back of the vent, I was just at that point where I had loads of work to do, 
and then I just lost it and I, well, I didn't have my car nearby to shout in but sure. I wanted to yeah and have you found any more people that have reached out to agree, well, agree with that yes after I talk about things like that um, and that is a bit from the show Like I Mean It which your listeners can watch on YouTube if they are so inclined that is a bit I, I don't know how successful that bit is because that is an example of me going, you know when you scream with rage alone in your car. And often a lot of people would just, audiences would just look at me and go, are you all right? And that kind of gets in the way of the laugh. But some people would come up. I did a show in 2011 about anxiety, but it was a sort of a nascent show. I suppose it was sort of an attempt at the show that I'm trying to write at the moment. And it was an unsuccessful attempt. I was never really happy with it. Um, after that show, I would say every other show, one or two people would sidle up to me in the Pleasant's Courtyard and go, hey, thanks, that's exactly what it's like. But it was only one or two people. And it wasn't, you know, it was a small room, so I wasn't turning over great numbers anyway. So, yes, people do occasionally come up and say, nail on head, I get that, that's exactly right. And although I sort of want to honour that and value that, and I do appreciate that other people get it and go, oh, yeah, me too. And I've certainly listened to comics talk about stuff and thought, God, yeah, I do that. And it's helped me create myself, my self-image. I think the, the, more you, the thing I'm going for is not getting individual people to really click with it so much as trying to say to a mass of people, either you do this and you hide the fact you do it and you feel bad about it and you don't need to because we all do it, or more people do this than you realise and we should all be kinder to one another for example with, with, with that bit so, so uh, I, I like it that people sometimes go god yeah that's me but no more than I like it when people go oh in my family we always you know that joke you did five years ago about a uh, you know a pastry well whenever we get a pastry on a Saturday morning we always do that bit you know that's I like that equally well you know it's, it, it's not just about howling into the abyss and, and having people go oh me too and come joining in the group howl <laughs> it, it's also it's you know that is satisfying in its own way but loads of the loads of elements of the job are satisfying yeah so that's not the only that's not the bit I okay primer last year mm. You, you were, it was a work in progress you took to different clubs, is it? It's a work in progress I took to Edinburgh. Just Edinburgh. And it's, it was built partially in the second halves of tour shows on the early part of this tour. And then it's, it's just a big jumble of new stuff. And I had such, such a fun Edinburgh doing Primer, which was uh, named after one of my favourite sci-fi films uh, about uh, time travel. I love a time loop. Um, and uh, I would write on it every day and change it up. And I had a screen on the on the like on a projection screen connected to a laptop with forty odd words on it. And I would change the words every day, sometimes substantially, sometimes not much, and kind of tailor things and tweak things and sort of try and wrong foot myself and try and sort of put myself in my most creative self, in my most creative state. And also, the other lovely thing about that was it was a small room which I had no trouble getting people into, and it was small and densely packed. It's one of the Monkey Barrel venues, and they're brilliant. Um, and there were no reviewers because it was a work in progress, and I wasn't eligible for any award judges because it was a work in progress. And it was the best. It was the best. 
I, and it was never finished and I was always flying by the seat of my pants and, that, and it was just it was just the raw state of making stuff over and over again every day for a month it was the most fun I've ever had at Edinburgh in 20 odd year, 25 plus years and I had some very treacherous thoughts where I started thinking I could just do this what does finished mean? Mm. What do I want? What do I do? You know, and I still haven't really resolved that. The show I'm doing this year is, is it is more finished. Some of it is from Primer and some of it has been developed. A lot of it's been changed or put away for next time or binned entirely. But part of me, a big part of me feels like comedy is one of the only jobs in the world where you can do what the hell you want. So why do we all do the same thing as everyone else? That's mad. It's mad. You can do whatever you want. We all do the same thing as everyone else because we want or think we want the same goals as everyone else. And obviously there's a certain amount of fear comes from thinking like, you know, one of the jobs of comedy is keep doing it, get better, and then eventually you'll be really good. And obviously down the line that you sort of think, well, when I'm really good, I'll be being paid loads of money to do really fun gigs in really exotic locations, for example, or telly or whatever. Um, so you want to be building up. You want to, It's like the gym, right? You want to be going to the gym every day. I mean, not that I do that at all, but metaphorically. You want to be constantly self-improving because later there will be dividends. And I suppose Primer was sort of me thinking... Well, but the, not the show itself, but my, my feelings of by the end of that festival were me thinking, what if there are no dividends? What if this is like, what show would I do if I was going to get hit by a bus tomorrow? Well, I just want to do the most fun thing. And for me, the most fun thing isn't a perfectly finished thing. As soon as something is per- perfect, as in I'm going to written a perfect joke or a set in my life. But as soon as something works every time, I get bored. I get bored. The thing that most stimulates me is the new thing. I think that's true of lots of comics. But if I wasn't chasing more money and more status and telly and stuff like that, then I wouldn't finish routines. It would just constantly be this kind of jumbly mass of a new thing I thought of on the way here, connected to an older bit and blah, blah, blah. So I suppose if I had any kind of courage, I would have said to my management and the world at large and everything else, I suppose I'd have, um, I'd have said, no, do you know what I'm doing from now on? I'm going to spend the next, I'm going to spend the rest of my career just making it up as I go along and doing it off notes and all the rest of it. And if people consider that to be unfinished or not the proper thing, I will laugh in their faces because there is no proper thing apart from what I say there is. Now, I haven't been that courageous and it also has occurred to me that all I could do is secretly do that whilst not advertising the fact and therefore have my cake and eat it. So maybe I'm doing that. Maybe so. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to ask is that with Pro, did that take the pressure off Edinburgh? Because obviously the last few months running up to Edinburgh is absolute panic mode. Did that take the pressure off that doing Primer where you were being creative on the go? Uh, No, yes, I don't know. I, I don't know. I try for it not to be panic mode. God, this year for the first time ever, I'm doing a thing Dr. Brown once said, years ago Phil Berger's brilliant clown uh, he said why does everyone go to Edinburgh and like exhaust themselves beforehand slog through Edinburgh and then have a holiday afterwards why don't you make sure your show's ready and then have a holiday before Edinburgh and I was like oh that's a good idea and with my son starting school in September we're doing that this year I'm going to go on holiday for a week and try and relax before I go to Edinburgh 
watch this space to find out whether or not that works. Um, I think, uh, did it take the pressure off? Yes, in some ways and no in others. Because part of me was thinking, God, can I do this? Am I really going to, have I got the, am I going to be able to focus on writing every day? Am I going to be able to, like, is this going to work? in any way at all and I feel like the very this happens every year the very first show I did and my manager was at it was Bobbins and it was still fine but I came away going that isn't what I dreamt of at all and then I did loads of writing the next morning and really went in with you know I went in and served the idea of not know don't know what's going to happen next jump around rather than that first one I probably the first one in Edinburgh, I probably went, right, now to polish up and deliver a perfect version of this deliberately chaotic thing. And so I kind of wrong-footed myself. Um, so it was stressful. But um, knowing there weren't going to be reviews and knowing it was a small room, that's lovely. That's already, already in July, I was probably thinking, I should do this every other year because... And the, the origins of Primer were on the 22nd of February, 2019 I had not written anything deliberately and I went to Leicester Comedy Festival and I took every note like I made notes like oh I'll do a thing about stuff whatever and I took all of those notes and I sat in a cafe for four hours absolutely shitting myself knowing I had to do an hour and I had no prepared material and I did an hour and it was it wasn't great but bits of it were fun and that's how I started making the show. And that was a big moment for me because then I released, I, I sold the idea that one has homework forever. Because what being a comedian feels like you've got homework forever if you're going to go to the festival every year. So I, that's my experience. I know you're a comic. I don't mean to tell you that. I'm saying that for the benefit of the listener. I, I think I, like comedy is supposed to be free and awesome. And I kind of like, I've turned it into work. I've turned it into homework. And, um, that made me go, oh, I can do nothing until the 22nd of, Le- of, Le- 22nd of Leicester. <laughs> and, uh, and then cobble something together. Not, co- not to shortchange the audience. I was very upfront about the fact I'm doing this with nothing. I said in the blurb, I said, my guarantee to you is that I will not have written one word of this show until the morning of the performance. So I kind of, you know, uh, uh, what's, you know, knitted, fixed, glued, stuck, promised. I kind of promised that. Um, and uh, uh, that was really electrifying and fun and probably not a brilliant show but it really was like a, people said nice things about it at the time and it was clear that I was giving off myself and I think that's what I love to see is when you see someone in extremis that's more interesting to watch than seeing someone slickly smash out their hour of perfectly honed gags there's room for that as well and is it taken, do you think it's taken that long for you to feel comfortable doing that? Absolutely, without question. If you go too far down that road, the danger is you just get good at floundering. If you can flounder entertainingly, then you can do you can do an hour with no material, flounder through it entertainingly and not really have done the brief, not really have kind of stretched yourself because I'm quite I'm quite good off the cuff, I'm quite good having a crisis, but the idea, the point of the exercise is to is to use that crisis to fuel a big load of creativity a big creative spasm as opposed to just get away with not doing much work and get away with it and I'm probably good enough to get away with it so what I try to do is not just get away with it but get something out of it because you seem so resolute on stage when when you're there you seem in control of everything you seem in control of the audience you seem in control of all your, your, your material 
But having listened to a lot of your post ambles and things like that, and you talk about your own life and things, mm. doesn't feel like you're as in control of your emotions outside and off the stage as you are when you're on stage. Do you think that's because the consequences of messing stuff up in your personal life are much greater than messing stuff up in comedy? Good question. Layered question. Let's start with the 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 premise. I am more in control on stage. I seem very in control on stage. I'll grant you that. In the post-ambles, which are the bits at the end of my podcast where I kind of spiel about whatever's on my mind, I'm revealing a lot more of sort of anxiety and, and being all over the place. Yes, I'm definitely... Well, the post-ambles are not written and there's no one there. So, so I'm more free because there's no one there. I'm literally sat in my room or in my, my van, <laughs> which has got great acoustics, it turns out. Um, uh, and there's no pressure to be funny because they are not set up as this has to be funny in the same way that my show does if you pay money to come and see my stand-up comedy show. So it's a very different context. I have always felt slightly dogged by this idea that I'm really in control on stage. I used to get called slick all the time. Every review would say that I was slick. I'm like, I'm not slick. What are you talking about? I'm just experienced. I came to comedy having done 10 years on the street. So I knew how to... I knew how to be confident in front of an audience. That's not necessarily the same as knowing how to be vulnerable in front of an audience. And that is part of the quest for the voice, is to, is to be as vulnerable in front of an audience as you would be if they weren't there. I'm getting better at doing that. So yes, the post-ambles are useful because they reassure me that not every minute of it has to be funny. As long as enough of it's funny. Actually, there's a lot to be... A lot of the shows I love aren't just wall-to-wall funny. They're when you get to know the person. And I've always been scared of people getting to know me because I... Well, just because that's scary, you know. Like, for a long time, I wanted to have a load of brilliant jokes so that I could go out there and do my brilliant jokes so that everyone would laugh and I'd feel great. And I thought that was the point. And for me, that really isn't the point. What I want is to... To be real on stage, that's so hard. That's so hard. Like I'm a terrible, when, when I think everyone finds it hard, like probably movie actors are amazing because like the best movie actors are probably the best people at going, there are, there are 20 people watching me holding cameras and lights and you know, microphones and stuff. And I can just be real, just access my real self and kind of, you know, wheel that into a character or something. But I find that really, really hard when there is the sort of the, the mouth of the wolf, you know, this, this pressure of expectation in the audience. And I'm only just learning to be okay with silence. I did in Farnham recently, about two weeks ago, in the, in the second half of the show, so the new material bit, the stuff that's getting ready for the, the void. Um, I, I stopped myself on stage. I said something glib and got a laugh. And then I stopped and I closed my eyes and I just had a real moment of saying to myself in, into the microphone... Just stop. You're being glib. Calm down. Be your actual self. No. And I noticed I was faking it. And I went, no. I started to take a breath. And I went, no, that's not real. That's not real. (sighs) Okay. And then I got on with it. And that wasn't a performative thing. And it wasn't supposed to be interesting or funny. They did really kind of go, what's happening now? That was quite good. But really, it was a genuine moment of saying to myself, stop being glib. 
Because you don't want to have an idea for a thing and then lose confidence and cheap out of it with a joke. What you want to do is actually say, this is the real thing. And you're not laughing, and that's fine. Because I'm talking about a real thing. I just need to... I'm quick to cheap out. I'm quick to make it all all right with a laugh. And what I'd like to do is just be all right with there not being a laugh in the hope of discovering something a bit truer and a bit richer. And then afterwards, I got an email saying, someone sent me an email saying, my girlfriend said the breakdown bit was real, but I was like, no, it's a bit. <laughs> and I'm like, breakdown bit? Is that what you thought that was? You know? But then I guess another part of comedy, though, is, is um, the audience getting on board with you, who you are. So if, if you are slightly vulnerable on stage, then they're only just getting to know you. So if there's a silence, then you're drawing them into, I think I spoke to Russell Hicks, I think you've spoken to him before, and he's one of these sort of loose cannon comedians that, just, just go for it. But he said that you've got to draw in that silence and absorb it, and then, and then make that silence so big. You know, um, do you, are you getting better at that? You're better at sort of just oh yeah, but I am, yourself. I am. I'm getting better, but gradually. It's very much against my nature. I don't mean my nature. It's you know. It's I don't mean my true self. That's what I'm trying to find. But it's against all of my habitual behaviour. Like I find it like I'm fucking hard. I find it so hard to do clowning because you've got to be really naked. You've got to be really. You've got to fail and look at them and accept that you've failed. My schooling was all about people pointing out I'd failed and laughing at me, or I felt like it was. So I'm very. It's like I've got this big thick shell that I'm just desperate to. Like it is habitual that it exists. And shucking it off, I find very, very hard. You know, and, and planning to, well, you know what, stand, it's like, it's, stand-up comedy is like that Muhammad Ali thing. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Everyone wants to be vulnerable and real until they're standing in front of an audience of actual humans looking at you. And then you're like, oh, I better protect myself, you know. So, so trying to do that is, I imagine, a lifelong quest. But again, that's part of why it's exciting, isn't it? Because... If it's a lifelong quest, it'll keep you busy and entertained and occupied. And uh, also, you might never achieve it, and that's fine, because it was your life. <laughs> and it seems like Prime is one of those tools that would have helped that. Because yeah, def- oh, definitely, definitely. Well, that's part... It, it was so... It was... Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. It's exposing yourself by, yeah. by um, having to come up with stuff on the go... Yeah, and also not just the coming up with stuff on the go, a creative crisis or a crisis I find a very creative thing, you know, being in front of hungry eyes and ears going, come on, what's the next bit? That makes me overreach in a a fun and creative way. But it's also to do with, um, it's also to do with the pressure being off because I wasn't saying here is a finished thing. So the trick now is to present a finished thing whilst considering the pressure to be off. And that comes back to that idea of being on stage and, you know, transmitting and embodying the attitude of, I couldn't give a fuck how this goes. You know, the commissioner of such and such channel is in or someone's a scout from Netflix and they're in the room and I just don't care because I'm just doing it for me and I'm just, just the work goes on forever and the work is to just continually be in these opportunities, whether they are, in inverted commas, important or career career important somehow the challenge is to just to get on with the work and the work a lot of the work for me is just being honest great and it is great (laughs) (laughs) throughout your career you've been influenced by events that have happened around your life so not necessarily on stage so much Mm -hmm. but when you spoke to other comedians or spoken to uh, people on their podcasts and things like that you're, one of the things that 
popped up even before you had children was that you always wanted to be a dad that was one of your biggest yeah, dreams sure, yeah. to be a father and now you are mm-hmm. in 2015 you spoke to a fellow and rival podcaster Richard Herring <laughs> a fellow and rival yeah brilliant yeah um, you mentioned that first child in a family is absolutely fine but the second child is a bastard you've now got your second child oh yeah right <laughs> I, said, I said I, I think what I said was that I um I had observed of my friends with two children that if you got a golden child on the first go round, the second one you'd get a terrorist. And I saw a lot of my friends get taken by surprise because their very placid, lovely first baby had made them think, hey, this is easier than we thought. And then their second kid was tough. My firstborn is very sweet and good-natured and sort of very curious and intelligent and articulate and things like that. So I didn't have, I I suppose to a certain extent he was a bit of a golden child. I'm happy to report my second one uh, is uh, even more chilled out. And I think we, I think we are, we experienced the inverse of that, which again I've experienced and I've observed in other couples which is that your first one is such a big deal. You're constantly vibing, you're holding the baby going, oh my God, are you all right? Are you still alive? And so you kind of program them to, to oh, oh shit. Whereas the second one, you're like, right, sit there, you're fine. And so they're much more chilled out. So my second child is much more chilled out. <laughs> so, do you, do but it wasn't a prophecy so much as an observation. <laughs> I hope not. And if it's the opposite way around, I, and we're not, we're not going to go on record to say that your first was a bastard. <laughs> no, no, no. And so, as your, as your kids grow, um, I know Boutros, your first one, is going to school soon. And um, this is a code name, isn't it? For, yes, for yes. Boutros. Um, and you're going to but school it is soon. fun watching people, not, not you, but like if I say that, I've got a joke about it in the show you'll see tonight. But okay. um, it's really fun saying Boutros on stage and just clocking some people be absolutely fine with that and others worry. But yeah. <laughs> and so obviously there's a flippant sort of comment you made with, mm. with Rich Richard. Um, as they grow, they, they, they understand that you do, you, Daddy's out at night time mm-hmm. and he's away from home mm-hmm. um, regularly with comedy. But they don't understand exactly what you're doing. Mm. Do you ever worry that one day they'll discover what you do mm-hmm. and therefore with the material that you do about them, are you aware of that as you're writing material? Yes, I try not to feel inhibited by it, but yes, I am writing with the point with the idea that they will one day hear it all if they want to, and I don't want them to be upset by it. I would suggest. I mean, it's not that much different to writing material about my relationship and sort of assume. No, you get a very different answer probably from my wife. What I tend to do with her is tell a joke about that pertains to our relationship or my domestic situation somehow I'll run it in and then I'll say to her hey look I'm saying this on stage and brackets it's working it's been working all over the country is it okay if I keep saying it and if she says no I'll drop it but she would quite rightly feel aggrieved by the fact that I um, would have kind of run it in because there's no point me saying I'd like to say this it might be funny and she goes oh don't don't try (laughs) you know Um, so there is you know of course there's a there's a there's an element to comedy which is inherently selfish, but I, you know, there's only a limited number of things going on in your life <laughs> that you can actually, that you can observe well enough to describe them well enough to connect with people. Um, I don't worry, I don't know, there's no, no, I don't really worry that they'll be offended by any of it because if, if you know, what have I said in, in my shows? I've said uh, uh, that 
you know, I described him looking at me when he was a baby and he was on the boob and I'd, and I'd kind of be feeling a bit alienated because he was sort of sharing, him and my wife were, were kind of having this immense bonding thing that I didn't feel part of as the, as the dad. And I'd got a bit of material about him looking up at me as if to say, Can, do you mind? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that was, a, that was a sort of a bit of an act out. I'd happily talk to him now about that and how I felt about it. I think the thing is the target in my work is me. You yeah. know, the target is my expectations, my hypocrisy, my my anticipations not being realised or what have you. You know, so so I, I'm I'm never saying my kid is stupid or my wife is bad. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I'm not there, and there are comics that do that that really have a go, and I I just sort of think, crikey, you know, I mean that must be tied to the sort of personality you are that probably the people in your life love about you. Mm. I, I think. Um, at the same time, you don't want to be inhibited by it. You want to feel like you can say anything. And sometimes I, sometimes I'll say something. I've got. To, I've been toying with an act out about trying to get him to put his shoes on, and I say something very mean to him in the act out, and he got a big reaction. And actually, I did it three or four times, and I went, "I'm not going to do that. I don't really. I don't really like being that mean to him. I'll be mean to the idea. I, I'll be." mean about the idea of a naughty or an unruly child but I won't be mean to him I won't sort of put a bit of something in the plot of me you know yeah that's a lovely little segue actually because in, in a club there's um, I always see it as like one big performance and every every comedian has a duty to be a part of that and sometimes you have to adapt and amalgamate yourself to to be malleable to the audiences you know what they want what they need is there a premise or are there Con- is there content or premises that you think comedy can't touch on? Mm. No. I mean, A, it's a very broad church. I found myself recently, every time I say A, I never follow it up with any other points. Um, I think it's obviously a very broad church. And I think that comedy is inherently amoral. All it is, is the smashing together of ideas in a surprising and satisfying way. So there is nothing that you can't do. But to even talk about what you can and can't do is to sort of suggest a a sort of floating moral standard, which I don't think exists. People can do whatever they want. I'm sure Nazis told jokes to each other in the bunker. Were they in bunkers? Yeah. Um, And laughed. You know, we're just humans. It's all just chaos. So I don't think... There are certain things I wouldn't say. There are certain things that make me wince when I hear other people say them, but it doesn't mean they can't do them. Uh, Equally, I think the freedom to say whatever you want isn't the freedom from consequences. So if you tell a joke on stage that's raised... something, Something that people often say, I often hear like edgy comics, edgy, who would probably even... Reputable comics who would hate to be described as edgy... But you, it does come up every so often in interviews that you hear people say, oh, well, you know, I say this awful thing, but they laugh. And as soon as they laugh, they're implicated. And I think, no, they're not. You can laugh in sort of shock and surprise and then immediately feel bad for laughing. If someone, la- if someone says a, a racist joke, which is, you know, a good, in inverted commas, joke in terms of it's surprising yet satisfying, even if the premise is racist, you can hear that and go, oh, God, God, fucking hell. And the fact that you laughed at it doesn't mean that you're racist. It just means you were surprised. 
you know so um yeah, that's, I don't know, that's a particular bugbear of mine where people are like, oh, you must be racist then because you laughed at that. You're like, absolutely not. We're more than our, just our instincts and our... Laughter is impulsive, isn't it? It's, a, it's an impulse. It's, it's, I mean, it's an, almost an, a, it, the best laughing is the uncontrollable laughing where you just can't help but laugh. So yeah, it doesn't I mean, make you... Yeah, you know, part of laughter is a violation, recognising a violation. Now, that violation can be benign or it can be evil, do you know what I mean? But... Um, uh, I think for me, I don't think there's anything you can't say, but there's certainly, everyone's got their taste. So I just think, you know, do what you want and live with the consequences. I've decided that I, I don't like the consequences being that people are upset. So I don't tell jokes that upset people. Mm. You know, I will occasionally, I've got a joke in End Of, which is about, I, I say, I talk about male friendship groups and saying, and I'm bemoaning the fact that it's really hard to make friends as an adult man, to make new friends. And, uh, I say uh, the bit is along the lines of uh, I say that's not how it works for men the way it works for men is you've got the kids you knew at school minus one who died and that's it and, <laughs> and that's I think that's a really good joke now often it, it has a mixed reaction some people are laughing in a real whoa, whoa kind of way other people are going oh that's a bit out of order I don't want to think about a dead kid you know, I can't protect everyone from everything. Some people lost a friend in childhood. Um, and I understand why they wouldn't laugh at that joke. And someone has come up to me after telling that joke once after a gig and said, hey, you shouldn't say that. And I feel like, well, I appreciate the feedback, but I, I, you know, I'm sorry that that joke upset you, but that is a sufficiently vague concept of a joke that I don't feel uh, implicated in reminding someone that they knew someone once who died. I, come on this could be is, anything couldn't it well yeah yeah I don't I don't set out to offend people but for me the payoff of that joke which is that a lot of us lost a childhood friend and that was a long time ago and we are rueful about it we can sort of we can be distant enough from it like sure if I you know if you have a child and your child loses a friend and you're at my gig and you know that's a very recent thing of course that will be upsetting but it is like that, you know, when I find myself, I mentioned before, I sometimes find myself wincing at, at other people's jokes. You've got to remember that, uh, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, that people who are offended by someone's joke about the death of a child a minute ago were laughing at a joke about cancer. And similarly, people who have cancer or have just lost someone to cancer will, won't be laughing at that bit, but they'll be laughing at a different, you know, so... Like, you can't go around policing yourself to a ludicrous extent just in case anyone is upset. Having said that, I love jokes where there is no victim. Part of that is I love the elegance, I love the art involved, the craft involved of making a joke where there is no victim because it's easy to get shock laughs by victimising. But I think to have a joke, it's almost like when you see someone like Bill Bailey and you go, Bill Bailey doesn't swear. Oh, good, because he must be better because it's so easy to swear. Now, it doesn't follow that he is necessarily better because of that, but you can appreciate, you can go, good for you. You didn't take a single easy route out. I've got a couple of jokes that only really work if you say fucking at the right time. And then they're less good because of it. So to tell jokes that have no victim, and I can't, you know, uh, off the top of my head, like they're just to take it out of my stuff, but there's a pub joke about, oh, I'm going to get in pub jokes. But yeah, I, I really appreciate a, a joke which has no victim, mostly because I'm like, oh, well played, shot.
you know, because you've managed to startle and surprise and yet satisfy us, but without giving anyone a kicking. Mwah. Beautiful. So I'm sure it's been many years since um, you've, you've run your own gig. Um, never. I've never run my own gig never, before. Never run your own I gig. I recommend it to so many comics. So you should run your own gig. I don't bloody want to. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. You're going to try and get good at MCing then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that much harder to start now. The truth is 15 years ago, it was hard. Now it's nigh on impossible to start and get, get you know, this bring of gigs and pay to play will be here yeah, for yeah. too long. All that kind of stuff. Um, so running your own gig is great and I always like it when it, like I played Jared Christmas's gig last night he's a fabulous comic based near Bath and he's got a couple of little village gigs near where he lives and I was I've just sadly had to pull out of doing a gig in Bicester for Andrew Bird who's another brilliant comic I love it when you get comics of that sort of level who run their own little gig and I've seen it I've heard it said I've seen it said numerous times if every comic ran a couple of their own gigs the circuit wouldn't have any problems anymore, you know. So I'm a big fan of running your own gig. It's just I've never done it before because it's a huge ball ache. Yeah. So you've got Chops Comedy, it's going to be called. Chops Comedy. It is comedy, yeah. We've had two of them already. It's every week for the next... Uh, it's every Tuesday in Bristol in Friendly Records in Bedminster. Uh, and we've had two of them and it's going to run until the end of... I've not done the maths. It's going to run for a little while, a couple of three so months. What, so what was the um, reason behind it? What was the idea? The reason behind it was that uh, there was, a, there was a, a night in Bristol on a Tuesday, which is a new material night, and I knew the guys that ran it, and their building was going because it was, it was a pub and it was getting turned into flats. So they wanted to make something somewhere else. And I sort of said, hey, wouldn't it be good if there was a, a club that I could just drop into willy-nilly whenever I wanted, like, you know, Lord of the Manor? And, uh, and so we joined forces and now they are doing all the boring and administrative bits uh, and I am booking the headliners from my little black book of uh, comedy pals and podcast guests and what have you so that it sort of works for everyone because they get to like we've we've sort of we we hashed out the idea of it together and we, it's, a, it's a place that really wants to celebrate the newness of new material and the craft of it it's a tiny little room it's cosy as anything it's lovely and um, it's they they're all selling out, which is great. It's only small, but it just has been working, and uh, I hope it keeps working. I feel like it's it's. I think going into projects these days, and I don't know where I got this. This is like a. I do know where I got it, but I don't know where he got it from. My friend Carl goes suggests going into projects, thinking to yourself, "What would it look like if this were easy?" And we did that with this project, and so far it's been easy. I'm not going to count my chickens until we've sold out every single one of them, but it started well. Now, if someone wants to go and see End Of, they can't, it's finished, it's, end of is, it's the end of End Of. What's next after that? So you've, you've done, you've got the end of End Of, can people go and see your next show, The Voyage? When's that, when's that coming So out? the next things I do are, and I'm going to show off about this because I've got a good month coming up, I'm flying to Cape Town tomorrow for the Cape Town Comedy Festival. I get back and then I go to South by Southwest in Texas for the comedy strand of that wonderful tech festival, which I'm a huge fan of and have been the last few years. Um, and then once I've been gadding around the world, having fun and doing podcast stuff and gigs for a month, then I come back and really put my shoulder into working on The Void, which is already, it exists. I just want it to be the best thing I've ever done by miles. Like I really want it to really, I want people to go, holy fuck, is that what you're doing now? And I've been doing some gigs recently that have, have had that sort of reaction. So I really want to make sure that is as good as it can be. Um, so, 
Uh, yes, so then I'm taking it to Edinburgh. It's at 10 past three daily in Monkey Barrel 1. And I can't wait to do it. And then after that, I do not know. I'm, I'm trying to make a sitcom podcast at the moment, which is another project I've gone into going, what would it look like if this were easy? And if it doesn't get picked up and made by people who are prepared to throw bags of cash at it, it's such a good idea. I'm probably going to have to do it myself for next to no money. And if I do that, then that will occupy a good solid wedge of months. I might, I might, I might just speculate on it and go, do you know, why wait for the world to catch up? I'm going to make this myself and I'm going to strip back a load of live work and just kind of have a sabbatical period whilst I make that happen. I might do that. And spend a bit more time with your kids. Well, there are, you know, like, yeah, I want to spend all my life with them, you know, and, uh, and I don't, God knows what happens next in life and in the world. But yeah, if I could, if everyone could please come around my house three nights of the week and pay me loads of money to watch me gig in my living room, and then I could just spend all day every day with my kids, I'd do that. That's not going to happen. So you, like, I, I, I keep coming up with, financial and creative side hustles because I like work and I like um, it's really weird I I keep trying to make my life easy so that I don't have to do anything and then I get all edgy and go no no, no but the whole point the whole reason I'm busy is because I desperately need to be busy so there's a sort of a it's a, as Ninja Benjamin says it's a fucking dichotomy um, <laughs> and uh, yeah so if the if the if the sitcom podcast thing doesn't happen then I will probably I don't think I'm going to tour the void if it's a smash hit I suppose I shall have to tour it but um, the plan at the moment is I do it at Edinburgh and I just kind of go this is a good thing what happens next and that's all that's always been the plan this is a good thing what happens next thank you so much for joining me Stu thanks mate So that was Stuart Goldsmith. What a conversation. You know, I really wanted to introduce you to him as a comedian because he's predominantly is a comedian. He's a fantastic comedian. He's a very good writer. And I was so glad to go and see him perform End Of. But ironically, I can't plug his live shows because we've all been banned from going to live comedy. So go and listen to his fantastic podcast, The Comedian's Comedian. There's over 300 episodes to binge on. You can go and find his Conan um, live show on, on YouTube. He's got loads of other stand-up stuff on YouTube as well. So you can actually go and see him do his live comedy online. So do that. And go and follow him on Facebook. If you go and like his page, search Stuart Goldsmith. Or simply click any of the links in the show notes that show you his videos, his podcasts and his Facebook. Next week, I've got a fantastic episode with a wonderful Spencer Brown, who is a comedian, uh, an actor, a presenter, and most recently has become an author. Tune in next week. Until then, please don't cough on the elderly and stay safe. And stop stockpiling shit roll. All right, I've not had a shit for three weeks. I've been eating fruit and fiber to try and make it solid so I can't poo. Let it replenish and then I can go and get some shit roll and stop using dock leaves from the garden. All right, speak soon. Cheers. Hello, I'm Luke Anthony. Do you love hearing about the stars, careers, lives and mental health? Well, Meet the Stars is a brand new podcast all about that. Join me every week from Wednesday the 2nd of December for an excellent conversation with a different star each episode. Simply go over to members.starevents.online to become a member, which gives you exclusive access to every episode and so many other brilliant features just for you. See you there.